0: Hey guys, thank you for tuning into this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. And another Twitter lurker has come out of the shadows and started dropping the most amazing threads about Austrian economics on Bitcoin Twitter at the Austrian3. Go follow him, it's, it is an Insta follow. I got to know Peter as we were sitting the, uh, the same course together. This will all become uh, evident in the in the chat that we get into, but uh, we had met, and I had no idea he was going to start doing these threads. And when they started dropping, I was liking them, retweeting them, commenting on them. I hope you've seen some of the retweets. And I asked him straight away, you've got to come on and do a podcast about this. this. This work is way too good to go unexplored. But he was way too nervous, and it's taken him... I think he's up to like 8 or 10 threads already and the other podcasters came knocking and he came back to me and he said okay I'm gonna have to start doing this podcast thing and I feel as though uh, as soon as you ask first we should do it uh, together so really appreciate him for coming back this is the first time you're gonna be hearing from at the Austrian 3 make sure you go follow watch his threads they are unreal and I'm going to do the usual shill. The usual shill, of course, is for coinfloor.co.uk forward slash You can go start stacking sats with a Bitcoin-only exchange. Or if you are in the US, all of our friends across the pond, that's swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. That will get you a free 10 bucks, and you can start stacking sats. Both companies purely Bitcoin. Both companies have got your back. Let's get into this with peter a couple of brick coiners shooting the shit i hope you enjoy it catch you after the show hey guys welcome to this week's edition of the one split podcast joining us today is at the austrian three from twitter uh we'll use that name unless of course you want to go any further than that but uh welcome to the show mate thanks for coming on
1: no that's that's fine daniel you can call me ptm and it's great okay. to be on your
0: show <laughs> excellent thanks so uh, a little bit of context, uh, Peter and I met whilst we uh, have been sitting um, through SAFE's courses, safedin.com, and, and um, it's gr- just great to meet another Bitcoiner, obviously, but we've met Bitcoiners from all over the world, and it's a really cool group. And Peter rushed to the head of the class, uh, let's say, and uh, which is very evident with the quality of his Twitter threads that he's been putting out, uh, just brilliant stuff. Um, Gone from Twitter lurker to a prolific uh, content creator. So that's always great to see as well. But uh, Lauren, you're going to ask the first question, aren't you? Um, So my question is, why do you write Twitter threads?
1: Well, I write Twitter threads. Originally, it started as a way of helping me to understand books that I'd read because I was reading a lot of books about economics and I'd read books. And sometimes I wasn't sure whether I was able to uh, repeat the argument back and really condense the key points in my own mind so that I could use this in, in uh, to support uh, arguments in my, in the rest of my life. And so I started out doing this as a way of uh, kind of just distilling knowledge that I gained from books. And then one thing led to another and I started to uh, get some interest in doing this on Twitter. And I decided to make them a bit more interactive and put some audio visuals in there. And it's become a really good way for engaging with other people who have similar interests in, uh, to me. And uh, it's turned out to be a great way of, of networking and making new connections. So I recommend it uh, to people that are looking to, to
0: share their knowledge on on, on Twitter. okay so you learn something new and you write it down like that you you try and break down the most key important points that you either want to remember Mm -hmm. or be able to speak about yeah this is something i got from yeah this is something i got from uh
1: tim ferris who i know has been a a great influence on you dan Uh, Mm -hmm. one of the things that he recommends is just writing not necessarily with any particular subject in mind, but he thinks it's a good practice because when you write, you distill your thought process on a page so you can see it frozen in time. And that can really help you to work out whether the logic of your thinking is, is good or bad. So I'd say for someone who's a, a young learner, uh, just writing as much as you can uh, on any given subject is a really good way of honing your thinking and making sure that you understand things in the way that you think you do. So. I, I use it as a way of helping crystallize
0: my thinking, um, but uh, I also recommend it to younger students as well. Or even writing down your thoughts or how you feel that day, why you feel angry, why you feel worried, why you feel happy. Like you write down your notes. Yeah, I've always got, how many notebooks do I have around the house? <laughs> Five. Well, there's three on this desk right now. <laughs> One, two. Yeah, I seem to. And yeah, well, and slowly we can show Peter that uh, they've been um, getting uh, Bitcoin stickers on the front these days. Very nice subliminal messaging there. Exactly. Yeah, you got five. Yes, and then all of the all of the old ones are full up, which uh, I find from time to time. And then when I look back and find these notes, it blows my mind uh, how much of what I'd written down has has stuck in my mind and how much of yeah. what I'd written down has happened. Yeah, And, uh, Peter and I, I think we spoke about this. Uh, yeah, it was with you. I'm sure it was about uh, writing down where you want to be in like three to five or 10 years time. Yeah. And, uh, how somehow that magically always s- turns out to come partially, if not a lot of the way true. Do you have any more questions about writing or anything for Peter?
1: Mm, No, I don't think so.
0: Okay. Would you want to say goodbye? Okay. Bye.
1: All right. Great to see you, Lauren. Have a good Good day. See you
0: too. Uh, Have a good day too. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. That's good. So, mate. Were you always? Would you class yourself as an academic, like kind of kind of person? Was was this because like the, the quality of your writing is crazy, and the the extent to the depth that you seem to understand these difficult topics, which we've all been learning about pretty much for the first time. Uh, very few of us have ever come across Austrian economics before coming into contact with Bitcoin, and it's a total you know, it turns your head upside down. But you've certainly grasped it and grasped it very quickly and far, far deeper than most. Is that something that um, you attribute just to having that kind of like academic mindset?
1: Well, that's very kind of you to say, Dan. I think
0: I've always been
1: very intellectually curious. And a particular thing that comes to mind as you say that is studying philosophy when I was a teenager. So when I was 16, I did A-level philosophy and I had a few really inspiring teachers. And really that was quite a big turning point in uh, helping my thinking to mature on a lot of subjects. And during that study, we touched on some issues relating to economics and also political philosophy, but that wasn't really the focus. And for me, it always... uh, the focus was more on stuff like um, epistemology and philosophy of religion. And uh, it was only later really that I started to to get more interested in economics. And in part, the reason for that is that a lot of the stuff that you do in philosophy is quite theoretical and economics seemed to me incredibly practical because it concerns essentially how we should, how we should arrange our society. And to me, that was, a really powerful thing because uh, I could see that lots of the reasoning or lots of the, the work that I've been doing in philosophy suddenly had this kind of practical outlet. And that really only happened in the last few years. But uh, once I discovered that connection and started discovering that applicability um, of a kind of philosophical way of thinking to these intensely practical questions, it really took a hold. And that's really what's been, I'd say, driving me to, to read more and produce the content I've been producing um in the last few uh few months
0: and for those listening i mean we've we've already doxxed your name uh, do, do you mind telling people how old you are <laughs> it's no problem yeah i'm 31 31 mate like it's, it's so so young and to to like uh, be thinking this deeply and and broadly it's it gives me so much hope for the uh for the future and yeah it looks like my son's just joined the call by mistake see i told you mate i told you stuff like this always happens he's he's a fan of
1: austrian econ certainly yeah,
0: yeah he just wants, i knew it he just wants some more austrian econ in his mind he's he's you know it's not enough that daddy's walking around the place spouting on about bitcoin all day long um well, he's not fully joined but I, I don't know what's going on here we'll see what plays out so if we go back then so you 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 obviously you you're studying philosophy a level uh do you go on and do more of that at university or do you take a different turn
1: so the a levels i did were were philosophy physics and maths and so i actually went on to do a combined degree that really uh perhaps it was a product of my being indecisive at the time but i i did physics with philosophy so it was two-thirds uh physics which really worked out to be like one third physics one third maths because it's a very mathematical subject of course and then one third philosophy so i sort of carried on my a levels really uh to university and uh, so the focus was physics but to be honest with you my passion has always really been in philosophy and that's really uh, the area that's captivated my my interest and so i see that as probably the key uh influencing factor in getting me into economics
0: and then after leaving university, this is where it all gets a little bit interesting. I want to talk about your time out in China. Uh, what, what, how, where did you, where did that job path lead you? Where did you end up finding employment? And uh, talk us through what you ended up doing. Sure. After
1: university, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I'd done this degree that was deeply theoretical. It was theoretical physics and philosophy, and I just originally thought. I'd like to take a year out and do something interesting. And I'd never left Europe before. And China had these teaching English programs that seemed that a lot of people seem to be talking about. So there were various programs that you could get on. And I went for one with the the British Council uh, and ended up being successful and spent a year originally teaching English in China in the southern city of Guangzhou. And after one year in China, I just became intensely fascinated by the country. I think one of the things that was intriguing about it was that when I was at school, I'd done a lot of study of um, of history as well, kind of er earlier on before uh, A-levels. But I'd always been really intrigued by communism and the fact that this ideology had taken over, um, uh, a very large part of the world. And so I was really interested to see how this manifested itself in an actual live and quite vibrant, um, massive economy um, in the form of China. So there was the sort of cultural aspect, but there was also this uh, political economic aspect to to the intrigue of China for me. And the the time was originally planned to be one year, but one year turned into two, uh, that turned into three, and then... uh, I ended up getting a job with the British Embassy uh, after learning Chinese, and uh, eventually I, I, I spent, without realising it, 10 years, 10 years in China. Um, so that was a third of my life at the time. So that's been a huge part of uh, what's made me who I am, and a huge part of the way in which I approach the big questions in life. So I'm now back in the UK after um, the coronavirus situation kicked off. I was sort of made to come back uh, to the UK uh, to relocate. Um, and, and that's where I am at the moment.
0: Out of the frying pan and into the fire. <laughs> <laughs> you can certainly
1: say that. Yes, China does seem like a rather liberal Uh, place now compared to uh, the uk in 2021
0: all right we got lots to dive into here because uh communism in china definitely during a a huge boom for the country uh there's a clash of communism capitalism clash of cultures Mm. um and then of course you're working for the british council so you you find yourself in uh air quotes public service and all of that somehow led you to bitcoin <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of rabbit holes we can go down there what yeah. was the job that you were doing um for for the council right
1: well, so there were two employers there so the first was the british council and that was a, an english teaching job and basically i was i was i did a training program with them and then i went into the school and was employed by the school. And the second job was working for the British Embassy in Beijing. And I worked for for them. Um, I actually moved between the embassy in Beijing and the the consulate in in Wuhan uh, that the British government has there. And I spent three years working working there. And I ended up doing a a variety of roles. Those roles involved trade and investment. So helping UK companies to uh, export to China and find investment opportunities in the UK and also doing policy work on climate change and energy. So I was basically a project manager overseeing uh, projects that were delivered by UK companies that were involved in in various bids. And so I had an oversight role of quite a variety of areas. And that, I felt, helped me to get get quite a good overview of what was happening in different uh, UK government departments. So uh, that was what I did for between 2014 and 2017. And then after that, I went on to work for a UK innovation organization. Uh, and I spent
0: three years working working with them. So whilst you're, and this is, you know, I'm going to tie this nicely into one of my favorite threads that you did. And it was about malinvestment. And sure. if you, <laughs> I'm trying to place myself in your shoes, having... Learn about malinvestment as the way we we know it as now uh through the Austrian eyes and then kind of glancing back to your past working at the British Embassy working in departments for like trade and investment or climate change um kind of innovative ideas looking back now how do you how do you feel about the, the amount of malinvestment do you think might have been going on or can you see clearer now like that what what was happening and uh, any any of those problems? okay well the way that I look at
1: malinvestment specifically is in terms of the Austrian theory of the business cycle. so it's quite a specific term used to refer, to investments that have been undertaken when business, uh, when interest rates have been manipulated downwards. So in a free market, interest rates are an indication to entrepreneurs of the availability of capital. So if lots of people save, that pushes down interest rates because the availability of resources is greater. And so with supply and demand, that means that it's cheaper to acquire resources. And the more resources there are, the, the, the lower the borrowing cost. But when you have malinvestment, well, malinvestment occurs when there is a manipulation of that interest rate process. So what happens is there's an interest rate at a certain level and then the central bank comes in and they push down the interest rate to below uh, its natural level. And that tells entrepreneurs, oh, there's loads of capital available in the economy, so we should go out and undertake investments. But the problem is once you start undertaking new projects, if the resources aren't in fact available to Uh, complete them because there are lots of other projects that are also trying to outbid you for those resources, then you're not going to be able to finish the projects. And the result of that is that projects are started. Like if you imagine, for example, a house that's been where you started construction, once you've built half a house, you can't say, oh, I made a mistake. I need to take those resources back and put them into something else because those resources firstly are worth a lot less and secondly you can't recover all the labour that you put into the construction so when people discover en masse that they have made an error of economic calculation that's that's when malinvestment occurs so that's when malinvestment is discovered so I just wanted to give a bit of a uh, uh, an explanation of, of what, that, what, what that term means in, Aust- in terms of Austrian business cycle theory but what I'd say is that in terms of the work at the the embassy and perhaps some of the other work. Um, the issue isn't so much um, malinvestment, but um, perhaps it's uh, understanding the direct impact of the work. It's, it's, always, it's always a challenge. Because if you work as a as a business, um, you know, say I'm, I'm Apple and I sell a certain number of iPhones, um, I know that I've been successful because I have pro- offered something on the market that people want to acquire and they have consented to giving up a certain amount of money in exchange for the good that I'm offering them. And so in that situation, both parties have consented, both parties have agreed that um, there's an asymmetry of values. To to the iPhone producer, they value the money they receive more than the iPhone they give up, and to the person that's acquiring it, they they value the iPhone more than the money they give up. So in that situation it's easy to know that you're adding value as a business. But the problem with with government work in general um, is that you don't get those direct price signals. So especially when you're working overseas in a foreign country, it is hard to know the extent to which you are successful. And the way that this is done is uh, is kind of based on some some modelling, some assumptions that align to uh, mainstream economic theory. But if you look into those um, and find them unconvincing, let's say, then that kind of creates a bit of a, a bit of a quandary. And uh, without going to too much detail, perhaps that's that's a fair description of the situation I found myself in um, when I decided to move on to other things. Could you ever go back now? I think I've so so let's let's just be clear like. There are, of course, very many talented people working uh, for the government and they have amazing skill sets. Uh, But there is always this problem. There is always this issue of knowing, of measuring your impact. And for me, that's a really important thing in terms of values. I want to know that when I'm taking part in the economy, um, I have acquired what I've acquired through a voluntary process. I haven't acquired it through uh, someone being forced to give me up. Give me resources that they don't want to give up. I want to know that it's voluntary. And so, for, for on a personal level, I think that what I want to do is work in in the private sector, and also want to work on things where um, I'm I'm confident that I'm adding uh, genuine value to society.
0: Yeah, and <clears throat> excuse me. I put a thread out recently about uh oh, a couple of weeks back about millennials in the workplace and this this really dreadful narrative that um you know they're lazy and entitled and it's just complete bullshit. Because when I speak to millennials, I've to I've spoken, excuse me, uh to hundreds, if not thousands, they say exactly that. They're like, I just want to get to the workplace wherever it is, and I want to add value, like immediate mm-hmm. value. Yeah but they find themselves in a seat where they're sat down told to sit down, shut up. This is what we do. And this is how we do it. And they are completely disenchanted like within seconds. Um, So there's two things at play. There's the the 45 to 55 year old man or woman who has the, uh, the hierarchy over that person. That's just basically scared and fearing for their job and their position because they see this, this young person come in, who the first thing they do is say, "Oh well, I can speed that process up by ten x." You know? <laughs> so it's it's a really interesting dynamic, and it's uh, it's it's nice to hear you say that. That um, and this is what this is what has pushed so many so many of that that generation into startups, who think mm. differently and think quicker and are agile and can move and change and can adapt because a lot of the legacy businesses you know as we know a lot of it is is just going to the wall and dying yeah no that's a great point Dan and it's something that I enjoyed
1: I believe that you mentioned this in your book this dynamic about the uh, you know the younger generation coming in and feeling restricted in larger corporations I think there is also something about corporations to be said here in that Our financial system as it exists does prejudice the existence of a large number of very large corporate, well, a large amount of the economy is dominated by large corporations, um, in part because it's very cheap for them to borrow. And so because of the way our financial system is set up, uh, that means that these corporations that become quite unwieldy and often have a lot of inefficiencies built in uh, end up being really dominant. And I can see that that would lead to some of the bureaucratic issues that you mentioned, uh, even though it's a private sector endeavor, because that is, you know, arguably that, that is exacerbated by the fact that the market is distorted uh, towards prejudicing, prejudicing very large companies.
0: Yeah, so we come back to malinvestment because your, your thread was based on a trip to Russia. Is that correct? That's right how you managed to get that in you, i have no idea i mean what, what you, how did you do that well there was a there was a
1: window last year when it, restrictions eased up slightly and when you go to with russia last year you were able to enter with a just a pcr negative test and then there were no further restrictions once you were, you were on the other side and i decided to take this time out uh, from, from my job, I decided to take a kind of six month sabbatical from work. And I'd always been really interested in communism, as I mentioned to you. And I'd spent time in China, North Korea, Vietnam, Laos. And but I'd never been to the sort of birthplace of communism. Um, <laughs> you know, Russia, former Soviet Union. So I was really keen to, to make the trip. And those pictures that I shared in that thread uh, on malinvestment were from a very remote town called Teribika up in the Arctic. It's right on the northern edge of Russia, in a very remote part of the Kola Peninsula, and uh, it's got some. It's got um, you know lots of abandoned buildings there because um, this town specifically, I believe, it used to be a military town and now is being kind of evacuated, but. Um, Oh, actually, the, the other one was Kirovsk, which was a former mining town. And that, that's where the station that I feature in that, that thread is, is 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 based. And what was really interesting about that that experience for me um, was that I I was traveling to this these very remote parts of Russia, and I was seeing that there were so many abandoned buildings. And I started to kind of look at why this was and it seemed that a lot of this had happened in the 1990s after the fall of the Soviet Union because of course when you have a planned economy you take resources and you direct them in a very specific way uh, to different areas of production so in this mining town for example um, they had a population of something like 70,000 people and that merited a, um, a the construction of a large train station there um but once the soviet union collapsed and russia um became an independent country uh it was f- discovered that this was kind of not a profitable thing to be doing and so this town's population ended up falling to about 50 percent of its its prior level and this station became abandoned and the actual structure itself is really quite large but it doesn't have a a roof and it's been overgrown and covered in graffiti it's this really uh kind of aesthetically compelling structure in a a dark sort of way Um, and it to me when I saw that it really symbolized what malinvestment means on a large scale you know it's not just about the simple example of a house that gets half built but it's um the example of what happens economy wide when you don't have the right price signals because you have central planning of the economy and resources are diverted to things that are later discovered not to be profitable and by not profitable we mean they're not serving the needs of society in the way that they need to those resources are better employed in other parts of the economy and so i was fascinated by that structure on an aesthetic level but also on a kind of philosophical economic level thinking okay well this is sort of what it looks like when you you discover that the investments of the past were were not right and it manifests themselves in these in this kind of very impressive and um, poignant monument
0: any examples in the UK that you've seen of that now you're looking through these different lenses Uh, you you're you might be out and about in town or visiting somewhere well not anymore but anything spring to mind That's a good question.
1: I come across less of that stuff in the UK. I think UK high streets are perhaps a good example. Um, One of the peculiar things about the UK, though, is that a lot of our construction happened a long time ago, and we're basically preserving old structures. I mean, the house I'm calling from today was built in the era of the the gold standard, like all the houses around here. It was built in the uh, 1890s um and that's that's quite true like very large amounts of our our housing stock were were built a long time ago and so and another aspect is that in the UK we're much more sort of sensitive to to safety and squatting and things like that and there's much more uh, uh there's much higher population density so there's much more pressure to to reuse land when it when it becomes derelict so you have you have fewer examples of this in the UK but um I think like, you know, a lot of UK high streets perhaps are, are good examples of urban blight and what happens when, uh, you know, you're basically under capacity. You're not using the space to its full, um, full potential because of economic change.
0: It just becomes a nail parlour or a sun, uh, that sunning telon. A, yeah, a, a betting a, shop, a pound shop, a tanning, a this. tanning salon. <laughs> <is what yours laughs> like, a a tanning salon, excuse me. <laughs> um, yeah, pound shop. uh Yeah, betting. What else is there that you know? It's just or or a Costas, like in yeah. every. There, there was three that I noticed each time I I visited the UK again. I would notice every single high street seems to be the same. And it was a uh, Café Rouge, maybe? Café uh, oh, yeah. Rouge, yeah. Nero was another one. Costa. And then Prezzo just, I don't know, like Prezzo just seemed <laughs> to keep spawning wherever we went. It was like, oh, my God. And then Ask Italian. Like, you know, it was like, man, it's just crazy. But is there anything, <clears throat> well... One good example that people talk about at the moment in the UK is always on people's minds and in the news and whether it's FUD or not, I'd like to get your insight from a malinvestment point of view on the uh, it's HS2, is that right? The the rail line yeah. between, right, okay. So if you wouldn't mind explaining to the listeners, you know, what that is, why that is, and your thoughts on it.
1: Well, I'm I'm no expert on HS2, but to give a kind of brief overview of what I understand uh, the project to, to be achieving, it's, it's essentially a new high-speed railway line that's being built between London and some northern cities, um, including Birmingham, uh, Manchester, Liverpool, I believe. And I believe it extends up to uh, Scotland as well, to Edinburgh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and if my cap- <laughs> if my memory serves me, I believe the project was is due to It's running into the sort of tens of billions. I think it's about 60 60 billion uh, pounds was the cost of this this project. And having lived in China, you obviously see that China has got a hugely impressive um, high-speed railway network, which spans the entire country. And it really built that um, in the last sort of 20 years. Um, It's expanded really rapidly. But China also does this far, far more cheaply than we are able to in the UK. Um, I think I read somewhere that, that it was a difference of something like a factor of 10 per uh, kilometre, the, the price that it costs China to build uh, one kilometre of uh, high speed railway line. Um, so, whatever the UK is doing uh, in terms of its planning permission and in terms of its construction costs and its regulatory costs, it is costing. Ten times more than China, and the thing is, it's not necessarily it's not necessarily the case that this will be a a, a malinvestment. Um, and as I say, normally that term would refer to um, private investment that's that's basically misdirected due to manipulation of interest rates. Um, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily a, a bad investment. But I do think it's very telling. Uh, another good example of. The the cost difference between uh, construction in China and in the UK is that um, China has just built this massive new airport called Beijing Daxing, and it's one of the biggest airports in the world. And it's got, I believe it's six runways. And the total cost ran to something like 12 billion US dollars. And the cost for building a single runway at Heathrow Airport was around 17, 18 uh, billion. <laughs> Again, all these figures off the top of my head, so uh, they're approximate. But what that tells you is that the, the cost of building like two thirds of a, of a runway in the UK equates to the cost of building an entire world-class airport on Greenfield land in China. Um, and that's quite an incredible thing to understand. So we have to try and understand why that is, why it is so costly in the UK. And uh, I, I think that a lot of that has to do with the way that land is, is regulated and the kind of dis- difference in input costs in the UK. Um, so, you know, we often think that the UK is quite a free market society, but there's a huge, amounts of costly, there's a huge amount of costly regulation that are involved in, in construction. And uh, that's something that I think does merit uh, reflection when we're thinking about economic decision making
0: yeah for sure and what about these ghost towns in in china did you ever see any of those is that just some fud or is that an actual real thing that's a that's a real thing um
1: so there was a construction boom in china which was quite prominent in the news in the kind of early like 2010 through to 2014 sort of time it's kind of it's less prominent now as a thing but Essentially, China, I mean, the reason for that is quite interesting in that um, China is a country that is in principle very centralized and very socially planned, but in, uh, they're essentially planned rather, but in reality, there is a lot of uh, devolved power that goes to the cities and goes to the provinces. And because provinces don't have access to their own uh, central bank and printing press. They have to look for practical means to generate income. And one of the freedoms that individual provinces have is is land. You know, they they have um, the ability to to sell land to um, to people and uh, allow them to use it to for construction. And in the environment where similar to to the UK, there is there is reasonable inflation, um, slightly higher inflation. Uh, traditionally in China than than here but um, uh, it may in that environment especially when you have you know it's all quite new in China right they've actually only only had the ability to purchase housing um, since the late 1990s in China so there's there are huge incentives to take your your savings and put them in property because that's a way that you can protect them from investment uh, from inflation rather and so as a result lots and of on the one hand, there's lots of demand for property from from consumers. and the, on the other hand, there is a huge demand for money from provincial and city governments all across China. so that did lead to this huge uh, boom in, in housing. and there were lots of projects that were discovered as being um, kind of uh, mal-invested, malinvestment projects. Um, but I have to say that is something that, you, that you st- you're hearing less about now. They have slowed down the construction in China. And um, despite everything, China um, has, been, has been continuing to grow and improve. I mean, it's got very large structural problems. But the impression I get is that it's on more of a positive trajectory in terms of actual increase in quality of life of its citizens than, for example,
0: the UK is. Right. Right. So it begs the question, why did why did communism interest you so much? Uh, we don't want people thinking, oh, he wanted to run off and join the gulags. Uh, clearly there was uh, a, a different reason. What, talk us through that. Well, it's never been the case that I've...
1: A lot of people come to libertarianism um, because they studied Marxism and they were kind of taken in by it and uh, they they then discovered the error of their ways and, and, and discovered Rothbard and Mises and all these people. For me, I've never been someone that has been sympathetic towards towards communism, but I have been fascinated by it. And in particular, it relates to the fact that there's, there's that quote about, um, I think it's uh, the Marx quote, where it's something like, you know, the point about... Um, philosophy is not to understand the world but it's to change it and Karl Marx gave <laughs> is an example who of, of a philosopher you could say or, or someone who, who sort of um, undertook uh, a lot of thinking and ended up radically changing the world you know I would argue in a in a, in a very negative way but nonetheless this was an example of, of someone who by doing philosophy and thinking through ideas ended up having a profound influence on people so even though I believe his ideas are you know flawed in 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 multiple ways and and have caused a huge amount of damage to to the world um, there is something fascinating about the ability of one thinker to transform social systems in that way and to have this cult of the personality develop around them and uh, there's also the kind of the fascination really with some of the extremes that that, that countries have gone to. Um, you know, it's like Stalin, Stalinist, um, Soviet Union, and North Korea, for example. And so all of those things combined make it quite an intriguing area of study.
0: So <laughs> what's, um, through your journeys, uh, what, what, what's been like the starkest kind of, I, I've never gone deep on any of these, isms at all uh so i was never i you know i went through gcse history and all we learned about really was the the second world war and you just touched on what communism was um what what's been like one of the kind of biggest unravelings if like you know once you've lived in one of these countries and seen what the fabric of society is like how, how does that stand up to You know what what we're sold as what communism is well
1: i think there's there tends to be quite a simplistic perception of uh which of of what states are like so if you listen to a lot of the rhetoric for example in america about china uh they they talk about it as if it's, you know, the same as the, the Soviet Union and it's a kind of communist country and, and the emphasis is on the word communism. But one of the biggest revelations to me has been how nuanced the picture is, because people often like to draw a contrast between the West and the East or, or the, the Western kind of liberal capitalist model and other models which are more state focused. And they say that China is an example of a more statist society that has been successful. And to me, that the thing that's been quite interesting to look at is the extent to which that is, that is true. I think, I think there are many ways in which, in fact, China is more uh, liberal than the UK. And there are many ways in which it is more uh, statist than the UK. But it's not the case that uh, China is a far more uh, authoritarian state-run society um, than, than we have over here. The picture is much more more nuanced. You know, we have far more uh, public services provided in the UK. We have a far larger welfare state than than China. Um, we also have far stricter regulations um, than China does. As I mentioned, China has a lot of autonomy at the city and provincial level, so uh, they're able to get things done. Uh, because they're not restricted by national regulations in the way we are in the UK regarding things like land planning. So I think what it's taught me is that going in, going into China, you know, thinking about communism at a sort of philosophical level, and then seeing the reality was quite an eye-opener, because it made me think, well, actually, uh, we're characterising these systems in the wrong, wrong way. In reality, every system has... Elements of statism and elements of uh, of um, kind of free markets, and we're, uh, we need to kind of pinpoint those and and find out which factors are influencing which aspects of society, and that's a way in which uh, economics or Austrian economics serves as a really um, helpful tool, because one of the things that Ludwig von Mises says in in theory and history is that in order to make sense of reality you have to have an antecedent theory otherwise what you view is just a kind of kaleidoscope of noise you know when we when we think about history or when we think about an economic system we have to interpret the information we're getting in in uh, in some way so if i look back at the the great depression uh, i look at the price level and the money supply um, in order to understand what happened with the economy, um, I don't look at things like um, all the other random data, such as you know what conversation did these two random people have in a in a cafe on a particular day. So even though when we look at uh, economic systems or look at historical systems, we sometimes think we're being unbiased. We're being uh, unbiased. We always come with a certain antecedent framework and that can help us to make sense of reality. And so when you're looking at the Chinese system or the British system, um, having that system of economics in order to tease out which particular factors are contributing to the good parts of society and which are contributing to the, to the more negative parts
0: um, is a really helpful tool. So you spent 10 years in China, uh, that, like you said, a third of your life, and then you're you, you just basically straight out as coronavirus hits. we' were in Wuhan at that point. I was in Beijing at that time. Right okay. so uh, straight back to the UK what 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 has really surprised you or opened your eyes up to you know what's what's going on at the moment in the UK with regards to either the the, the economy as a whole with the the, the money printing or the the, the way it's handling um, coronavirus or, or everything you know what, what what are your feelings right now?
1: Well, to be honest, I'm really concerned about the developments regarding the response to coronavirus. Um, Coronavirus is obviously something that a lot of people are concerned about. But my concern with it is that it is uh, being looked at in quite an an insular way. And we're not looking at what the impact of the interventions are sufficiently. So we've seen this year... um, a very large amount of money printing all around the world. In the US, um, the M2 money supply expanded by about 24%. In the UK, it was something like 12%. Japan and the Euro, um, the euro and the yen have similar figures. And we're also seeing you know very large increases uh in public debt as a result of that. And so I just think that if your concern is health outcomes, clearly uh Coronavirus is one thing to focus on, but you also have to understand that your health outcomes aren't just the health outcomes of today, they're the health outcomes of the, the future. And you have to consider what the opportunity costs are of having a really damaged uh, economy going forward. And of course, even if you are someone who believes in state run uh, services like healthcare, the damage that you're doing to the economy must have a have a sizable impact on the funding for the healthcare service in in the future so i just worry that that's not being not being fully considered and there seems to be an attitude that we will just do whatever it takes to focus on reducing this one kind of metric related to coronavirus um, rather than looking at the bigger picture and broader and broader health outcomes and i do think that this is going to create some serious problems down the line um, because the more you incre- increase debt, um, the more pressure you put on interest rates um, in the upwards direction. And that, uh, I think, will create some some potentially serious problems uh, in the next few years.
0: And when you're talking to friends and family, having the knowledge that you have now, how do those conversations go? To be honest, this is a very sensitive topic. And
1: uh, it's something that I feel strongly about i'm not gonna lie about that but i respect the fact that other people have have different views on the topic and uh so the attitude that i have is that if people want to talk to me about it i'll give them an honest uh assessment of my uh my view on the situation but um one of the things that's quite sad is that there is you know we have some quite um uh quite bold, you know, government advertising on the streets in the UK at the moment, um, you know, encouraging people to stay at home. And there are some quite graphic imagery associated with that. And there is a huge amount of emotion um, amongst the population. Some people feel that this is really wrong, what we're doing by locking down the the population and by... um, Basically, taking away the quality of life in order to um, extend the duration of of life for, for a very small minority of people. Um, but some people feel very strongly in the other direction, and they they sort of see it as a um, uh, you know they they then we see it like like you're contributing to the death of other people if you if you don't comply with the, the rules, and so. I've had some conversations and some of them have been very, um, positive and can constructive, but this isn't something that I tend to focus on too, too much, um, because of the, the sensitivity around it.
0: Yeah. They're tough conversations to have, mate. I end up walking away from zoom calls most of the time. <laughs> 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 Speak to the kids for 15 minutes. I've got to, I need a breather. Um, that's, uh, well let's get to the rabbit hole what right. uh, if if you're happy sharing when when that happened or you know why that happened something led you there for for whatever reason um yeah. can you pin your pin you know pinpoint when that happened do you, do you think can you can you like visualize exactly where you were what was going on you know a precursor before you'd even found the rabbit hole to bitcoin there's usually something that you can kind of draw a direct line back to
1: well, as I say, when I was doing the work I was doing in China, I started to become exposed to a lot of the economic arguments that were made in favour of certain programmes and certain policy interventions. And I kind of accepted them on faith, really, that these were these were evidence-based and, and substantive pieces of work. Because when you look at business cases and economic analyses, they look... Like the things I studied when I was doing physics, they, they have nice graphs and they show different scenarios and they're well presented, well funded, and uh, they look convincing. But I always had a bit of scepticism about that, um, even though I did accept that, you know, this is the case and we're going to have to use this as our support. And that's what kind of drew me into more and more uh, study of economics. I think a key turning point was when I uh, started a new job in, uh, in in the summer of 2017. Uh, I ended up working at a co-working space in Beijing called Tech Temple. And there were a few guys in there that were working on Bitcoin. Um, a guy in particular called Neil Woodfine, uh, who uh, was the guy that originally introduced me to, to Bitcoin, <laughs> was quite a big influence. And... Basically, I ended up having a load of discussions with people like Neil, and laying out what I saw as being the sort of general statist uh, case for uh, doing a lot of the things that that people believe in, like all these policy interventions to make the world a better place. And we just had really good we just had really good conversations um, where it was just methodical, step by step logic. And I found that I was enjoying it because I was losing the argument. I was like, "Yes, that makes sense." (laughs) And (laughs) what you're saying is 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 very true. And then I'd go away and I'd do some research and I'd say, um, "No, I'd I'd cite um, economists like Mariana Mazzucato, who wrote um, this book called The Entrepreneurial State, and it's about how uh, the state should play a key role in supporting." companies to generate new technologies and I was putting all these arguments to the likes of Neil and uh, he was sending me pieces in response he was sending me Hazlitt he was sending me um, uh, Mises Bastiat and I was kind of going away devouring these books and then going back and then being like yeah actually I think you're you're right I think I'm wrong about that and um, it's just weird because most people they, when they discover that they they've been wrong, it's sort of like an affront to who they are. They take it as personal insult. But I think we all have some of that in us. But to me, I feel like I kind of knew that the arguments didn't add up. Uh, that I was that the arguments that I was uh, putting forward didn't quite add up. And so it was really like a breath of fresh air to suddenly uh, get exposed to a different school of, of thought. And that led me to uh, reading, I actually started off with a lot of Nassim Taleb, but then I moved on to the proper, <laughs> the hardcore Bitcoin stuff like uh, the Bitcoin standard. And then a, a key turning point was at the beginning of 2019 reading, uh, I took a week off to read Human Action and that that was just a, a really profound experience because it's, It's, in my opinion, one of the best books ever written. Uh, It's a huge feat of of philosophy and um, logical thinking. And it really takes you through the entire economic system from the most basic philosophical foundations through to the complexities of um, investment, interest rates, interventionism. And when you've read it, You don't you don't know uh, everything, but you feel that ah, at least I've got the framework now. At least I know how I can start to make sense of the world. And um, those yeah, that was that was really a key turning point in my
0: in my thinking. It's way more intuitive, don't you find?
1: It is. It's it's really intuitive because it's it's based on a uh, deductive system of logic, and if you read a kind of A-level economics syllabus, it starts out with certain assumptions at the beginning. Um, And I did this afterwards. I thought, you know, I'll go and read the, uh, because I didn't study economics at at school, but I went and read um, cover to cover the uh, CGP A-level economics (laughs) syllabus or the the revision guide. So it was quite interesting to kind of compare what I'd learned to what was taught in school. But on the first page, They just have a set of assumptions. And um, it's kind of stuff like what we assume utility to be. I think that's a great example. Um, In the Austrian framework, we assume that utility is just a measure of preference of one thing over another. It's essentially a a relative preference. It's it's what's called an an ordinal um, uh, quantity. So that just means that in a certain order, um, you prefer one thing over another. And the thing that you prefer more has greater utility than the thing you prefer less. Um, so if there is a, you know, as I go to a shop, there's an apple an orange and a banana, I'm willing to pay uh, a pound for the apple, um, a 50 P for the banana and 40 P for the orange. That means that I'm, uh, you know, value one over the other. Um, I value these, these in those particular order, but um, One of the things that sort of the standard economics thing uh, uh, syllabus will assume is that that concept of utility is some sort of objective, quantifiable, measurable thing. And this is just sort of stated as an assumption. There isn't really any like um, philosophical grounding for that. But you take that like in like in mathematics, when when we're doing physics, we'll say, okay. uh, a equals 27 and therefore work out the answer to this equation it's like it, it's it, you can work it out if you've made that assumption a equals 27 at the beginning but actually the reason for a equal equaling 27 uh, may not be may not be sound and so after you start working through all of this stuff you, you develop this complex framework and and by the end you've kind of forgotten that it was all based on that one assumption <laughs> that doesn't have any foundation and uh That's one of the things that I think makes Austrian economics much more intuitive because it deals systematically with the foundational issues and builds up a comprehensive framework from first principles in a way that um, kind of mainstream macroeconomics doesn't do.
0: Yeah, nicely put. So I'm going to have to get Neil Woodfine on the uh, on the show now. Uh, after listening oh, to after listening to that story of him pilling you in uh, in China, that's brilliant. So you you go away, you have these arguments or discussions or logical conversations, whatever you want to call them, with, with Neil. Uh, you probably start interacting with Bitcoin. How's that changed you over the years?
1: Yeah. So. I first came I first really got into Bitcoin um, so I'm part of the school of, of 2017 that's when I started to um, acquire Bitcoin um, prior to the sort of uh, euphoria that we saw in the kind of late <laughs> late months of that year um, so it was quite nice to see that the, the initial purchases I've made kind of appreciate very quickly. Um, And then there's, of course, all of the FUD that comes with seeing it go down again. But a key book for me was the Bitcoin Standard by Saifedean Amus. And of course, you and I both met through Saifedean's online um, seminars that he does every week. And that book is really a, a phenomenal work. It lays out a very compelling historical account of the origins of money and i think it's like the first first two thirds of the book are not about bitcoin at all they're, they're about just the emergence of money and, and economics and safer really has quite an exceptional talent um in thinking logically and laying out very clearly uh, a strong evidential case grounded in austrian economic theory um, for why bitcoin um, is well suited to become a new form of money and I read that book and I was convinced by, by that book I was like right you have convinced me <laughs> what's next and I uh, you know became a kind of um, I became a bitcoiner more and more through, through the months after reading that I continued to read various, various other things um, a lot of stuff related to to Austrian economics, uh, a lot of the kind of classical works. Uh, the Mises Institute is a great resource for finding all of those, those things for free, by the way. Um, and uh, it's just kind of developed from there. And it's not something that, for me so far, feels like it's a bit of a, a fad or a phase. I've just found that the more I look into this, the more interested I become and the more excited I become about the potential for a world in which we are free of inflation, um, for a world in which we are in a situation where we have a money that cannot be confiscated by another third party, that cannot be censored, that means that for every transaction that takes place, because this system is based on a set of private keys that can be written on a piece of paper or just memorized in your head, the potential for compulsion, the potential for people to coerce, um, coercively take wealth away from other people is uh, lessened to a, to a very large degree. And to me, that's just a really exciting prospect for uh, for the future and something that, as I've learned more about, I've become more and more interested in.
0: Yeah, and that's what led you to to Bitcoin, Bitcoin Twitter uh how how long were you were you lurking around on bitcoin twitter before you started dropping these these amazing threads of yours oh man i mean not long i actually joined uh in june 2020
1: so i i set up an account um called the austrian three um and uh because you know by that time i was very interested in austrian economics so i was i was kind of using it as a way of just following people finding out what was going on um and it was I I sort of in dribs and drabs started doing these these shorter threads about books I'd read I did a couple of early ones on the uh uh, there was one I did on gold wars um by Ferdinand Lips which is about Sweden uh, about Switzerland's experience going off the gold standard um and I sort of I got retweeted by Saferdean and I was like wow you know I can get 40 likes or whatever it was on a on a this is quite, this is quite cool. I've obviously done something that's um, other people appreciate. And then I started having a more serious think about it and uh, thinking about how I can apply um, some of my interest in, you know, uh, things like filmmaking to, to, to making some simple graphics for, to accompany the threads. And so it's taken off a little bit from there. Um, Hopefully improved, improved a bit and seems to be getting reasonable traction so far which is uh really encouraging Do
0: you remember when you first um started following a few people were you like what in the actual fuck is going on like yeah. <laughs> it's it's a unique place to be isn't it and for for noobs that are first coming to twitter to to you know putting in the hashtag bitcoin and finding all the different characters and, and so on and so forth to follow you, yeah. you you're pulled from you know like pillar to post like almost instantly you like <laughs> yeah
1: yeah there's so much stuff isn't there There's so much kind of law around bitcoin um you know stuff like the the, the matrix memes the um kind of like the random stuff like this letter h circling uh, circulating around on twitter <laughs> as a response to uh to fud um yeah there's a lot of stuff to to kind of get your head around but um i just feel like it's a community of people that um you know they they're quite inspiring because they they believe in something that has the ability to make the world a better place and i found this that people that i have met through twitter for example you may have seen that i did a a joint thread with um anil for example anil said so um, is his is his hashtag on is his is uh, uh, handle on Twitter, um, but yeah, it's just like you you meet people and you just immediately click because you've got this thing in common that you've both gone really deep with. You know, it's not like I meet someone and they're into fishing like I am. It's like I've I've kind of it's like you meet people and you know they've probably gone through a similar process to you they probably accepted a lot of mainstream narratives about the way the world works the way that uh, economics is explained by the mainstream and the way that um, money is um is controlled and they've received a different narr- they they've 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 come across a different narrative and then they've they found that to be more compelling and they've ended up not only changing their worldview quite often, but also, um, you know, making quite per- big personal sacrifices or, or bets on, on, on this particular future. And so, yeah, conversations like that, you know, we met, we, we put this thread together. We'd never met before. Um, and we literally just had the first conversation, uh, when we were about to post the thread just to coordinate it, but it was just really nice to, to chat to him. And uh, I felt that this immediate, um, you know, uh, connection. So um same with um Ronnie Sturfer at Incrementum. You know, I, I met him via Twitter. I'm now doing a little bit of work for Incrementum, uh, which is a Liechtenstein-based um uh uh financial services company. And yeah, you just meet these people and I feel that a lot a lot of us immediately click because we have this this quite profound thing in common and that's really nice.
0: And I love that story because they found you because of what you were posting on Twitter. And this this could lead to, uh, you know, a very good um, kind of a line of work for you.
1: Well, potentially. Let's let's see what happens. At the moment, I'm just really uh, enjoying what I'm doing. I'm really enjoying the interaction. Um, I think in life, quite often, we end up underestimating what's possible when we give ourselves a little bit of freedom to be. Creative, and a lot of people when they because I decided um, to leave my my former job uh, in May of last year, and a lot of people would be sort of going from that into immediately you know sending off CVs to every single company because that's what you do because you have to have um, a job uh, coming in, and for a lot of people you know unfortunately that is the situation because because of the economy we live in because we have, we live in a debt based economy. Um, you're really incentivized to have lots of debt and lots of outgoings, and that makes it really difficult to step back and take some time to reflect and think about what you what you might want to do, and work in a way that is kind of creative in a in a in a direction that you think might lead to something that you're not but you're not quite sure what. And um, you know, being someone that that did take kind of a substantial bet on Bitcoin uh, early on, that has obviously um, given me uh, a bit more freedom to be able to undertake projects like like this. So um, it's been, so far, I'm just, I'm really enjoying it. It It's led to um, to some some work already, which is is great. Um, But it does make me think, yeah, this is really a great community of people. I feel like I, I connect with their values and I feel like, um that's the most important thing when you when you go into a, a job. You know, it's it's feeling that what you're doing at the end of the day uh is is helping make the world better and help helping you know add value to society. And so if you can feel that's the case for your job, then um then that's that's a win. So more and more I'm I'm looking for sort of a longer-term um role where I'd uh, where I'd be working within the Bitcoin space, potentially doing some uh some content creation like i'm doing on twitter but uh who knows something something else might might beckon at the same time
0: fingers crossed for you mate and it's a, a, another signal to anybody that's sitting out there listening to these podcasts that you know they're trying to figure out a way to contribute to this space because once you're here you want to contribute to it uh you know buying and hodling yes that's brilliant but then you want to start giving back almost immediately and so whatever you're thinking about, uh, you know, Peter's put out some threads and he's picked up some work on the back of it. Croesus, he came on the show. He did the same. He's uh, been picked up by Swan. He's writing a, a few blog, blog posts for them. There's companies being created all the time, right? Bitcoin entrepreneurs are out there trying to create services. They're going to need help at some point with create content creation or developing or uh, whatever it is, whatever your skill is, you know, Bitcoin Twitter is the place to start interacting and, and reaching out. And I urge anybody listening that has got that itch to, to go start something creative like you were talking about, Peter. Um, mm. it, it's amazing what can happen. I didn't expect yeah. this would be like about the 110th episode of a podcast a year later, right? <laughs> I just had no clue. <laughs>
1: yeah, and, and I'd say to that as well, um, you know, your own story, Dan, is, is very inspiring for a lot of people. And so, aside from the, the Twitter stuff, um, I'd really recommend that people go and read your book, which I read earlier this month. Um, you know what you've done with your life. You know, for those who listeners who aren't aware, it's a book called Choose Life, and you really talk through the situation you were in in Singapore, uh, feeling that you were in uh, a job that you no longer found fulfilling, and you wanted to um, take your life in a new direction with your with your family, and there was a lot of fud there was a lot of uh uh you know uncertainty you had a lot of people that that said this is a crazy thing to do but um i think what is it six years later you are uh, still on the road you're doing things that you love you're giving your family a great uh, education but in an alternative alternative way and i would say to people that are thinking about what direction to take their life in um you know, life is so short, really. Um, We only live once. And so just make, make the most of it. Because I think you have the power to shape your life much more than you you probably realize. And I think your own story, Dan, is a great inspiration to people. So I'd I'd encourage people to to check out more of your, more of your uh, writings and also listen to your podcast as well.
0: Thanks, mate. Nice shill. Appreciate that. Um, and I will also point people towards, uh, I did a show with Brandon Quittum. Uh We were talking about his, his writing about uh, Bitcoin being a mycelium and uh, like fungal network. But we got deep down to the rabbit hole of his own um, career and how he extricated himself from, you know, he was a top salesman at a huge company and whatever else had the drop top yeah. convertible BMW, whatever, right? Had the dream, right? it was just you know this realization that it was all just empty and um again a great episode and he had oh loads of people reach out to him after that you know asking more about that uh, so go listen to that one as well if um if you're interested in how to change your life and um learn from those people that have done it before uh mate i've got to ask you favorite thread what's the favorite one that you've put together you, you, you've put out I, i'm gonna guess like it's between eight or ten i think uh <laughs>
1: What? I don't actually know the full number. It's a, it's around that, but actually, I do have a a special place. <laughs> um, the one oh, we got I, into an I,
0: argument I, on one the other day with, with with your with your mate that turned around and said diamonds <laughs> aren't scarce. <laughs> that was the best.
1: <laughs> that was that was awesome.
0: Yeah, that <laughs> was a, special. Yeah,
1: that was uh, that was an objection you don't expect to get. Uh, to a you know you expect to, you might get a kind of casey objection but to give context to, to your listeners um this was on a, a thread that i i recently done uh, on behalf of incrementum called uh, austrian school for investors and it lays out the uh austrian austrian case in terms of four pillars of austrian economics and then um business cycles and then and then kind of how it can be applied to some investment strategies but one of the um the uh kind of explanatory bits drew on the water diamonds paradox um, as an explanation for the phenomenon of marginal utility. And um, this this paradox goes all the way back to Adam Smith. Um, and it's basically, why is it that um, diamonds have value? Um, and, you know, it can't be because they're, just because they there aren't many of them because, you know, otherwise I could, um, you know, I could write my signature on a napkin and that would mean that, um, you know that, there's only one of that in the world so that would be super valuable that's not necessarily the case and so people try to, try to understand like, why diamonds are worth so much money compared to say water because diamonds are sort of this luxury you don't need them to live they don't seem to have a great use value but uh, water has such uh, high use value you, know, you need it to survive yet it's much less valuable and what the, the classical economists like Adam Smith said is that um, you have use value and exchange value and the use value of um, uh, diamonds isn't particularly high, but it, but it's um, what makes it what makes it high is the fact that it costs a lot to produce a diamond, and so it's a kind of like an input theory of value, a bit ser- similar to the Marxist labor theory of value. Like the more you put into something, the more um, the more expensive it is. Um, and of course, what, what Austrian economics shows is actually the other way around. You know, things aren't Determined, the price of things isn't determined by how much uh, input goes into producing them they're determined by what people are willing to pay for them on the market and that in turn spurs more resources going into production so it's the other way around but anyway that's a rather long digression Dan um, <laughs> the, the comment I had on Twitter was, was from a guy who said that's wrong because diamonds aren't really scarce they're, the price of diamonds is held high by a cartel and if not uh, diamonds would be uh, abundant, and so that's a bad example. And I think we had a bit of fun on Twitter um, <laughs> posting pictures of handfuls of diamonds and saying, "Look, I just found this down the back of the sofa, um, <laughs> yeah. etc." The,
0: the beauty of it, actually, um, when I, I I first read that, I, I just like shook my head, and I think I looked out the window and it was pissing with rain. I'm like, "Oh, that that that's just so perfect." Like, <laughs> That was surrounded by water. Yes, <laughs> but yeah. uh, anyway, back to the original question: favorite thread? Is there one that holds a, a special play, well, place in your heart? You were talking about.
1: Yeah. Well, to be honest, um I think that's probably a slightly dramatic way I've put it there. But yeah. the one that I feel <laughs> most uh, most proud of uh, is probably that most recent one. Uh, ones that have got a lot of traction have been the one on the sovereign individual. Um, and I also did one on um, when money dies, which is on the Weimar hyperinflation of the 1920s uh, by Adam Ferguson. Um, so that was a, those threads were really well received. But this most recent one, I think, um, is is the one I'm most proud of because it really um, goes through some quite. I feel that it captures quite, quite, um, quite well, to my mind, at least the logical steps that are required in order to get to a position on investment from Austrian theory and particularly the stuff on the Austrian business cycle theory is um, I think really important to understand. Um, Roger Garrison has put together, who's who's um, uh, one of the professors at the, the affiliated with the Mises Institute. Uh, he put together some amazing, but now like slightly clunky and slightly outdated looking PowerPoint slides on this. So uh, if anyone fa- fancies a, a slightly um uh, a difficult task then like trying to take those powerpoint slides and translate them into something that that looks quite nice um, is something that will require a lot of a lot of effort um but in the, to get to to get to those austrian business cycle theory uh slides that i put together um yeah i drew a lot on that and i feel like roger garrison um has has really um you know put together this this really excellent a theoretical foundation for helping people understand this important theory, and so it was nice to be able to kind of bring that um, perhaps a bit more, um, you know, up to date with the graphics and stuff, uh, and incorporate it into a broader narrative. So I'm really pleased with that one.
0: Are you, um, uh, if people want to go and find these, uh, it's just on Twitter. Did you build a website or anything yet? Where are you going to keep everything? Because you know, once on Twitter for a second you know lost forever it seems that's
1: so true isn't it uh yes i do so i've got a medium account and it's it's just the one page it's just the place that i uh keep my my threads so if you go to my account uh at the austrian three uh, there's a link in my bio to to the medium website and you can see there all the major uh, threads that i produce
0: excellent mate i'll make sure that goes in the show notes all right well if you had one orange pill left to give who would you give it to and why oh
1: that's a tough one man
0: (laughs) and i should have anticipated this question because i've listened to
1: so many of your podcasts ah i had one orange pill to give it to um
0: There's no books to go and read about on this. Uh, you can you know.
1: <laughs> I think I would probably give it to some of my family, some of my family members, um, mm. because um, one of the challenges is that uh, you know the, the Bitcoiner worldview and the kind of Austrian economics worldview is something that I think is perhaps perceived in, in the wrong sort of way. I think people have a lot of very negative stereotypes about um, people that think that free markets are a good thing because there's so much there's so much narrative saying that they're not, and there's so much um, vested interest in maintaining the current status quo system. And I do have family members that that, that I'm sure have different views on this, um, and so I think to be able to give give an orange pill help them to see um things from my perspective uh, would be a really uh, really valuable thing you know even if that didn't bring about total uh, agreement it would just be um be good um for them to understand the the position really so it would be a, it would be a personal answer from me uh Dan, yeah, some some family members that
0: are close to That's me. awesome mate awesome and i love the way you just like are you always this chill you know when when talking about this stuff because i can rant pretty quick when especially <laughs> when i see some stupid shit like you you might walk in uh, example you might walk in your your parents might be watching the tv and it's just announced that you know the uk is printing another injecting another 100 billion pounds into the economy yeah. does that just get you going or do you do you calmly sit down Okay, everyone, let's have a cup of tea and discuss what's going on here because like, you seem very, very well reserved.
1: So I do have my moments, Dan, when <laughs> I get slightly frustrated. I'm probably most exasperated when I chat to my dad about some of this stuff. So we make sure that we, like, we set aside time Uh, every week just to sit down and have a one-on-one chat and we often talk about a lot of a lot of this stuff and I can sometimes get quite animated in those those conversations which I suppose is a good thing because it means that I feel that I can be um, you know open and I can speak speak freely but generally speaking it is a challenge because if you do subscribe to the view of a lot of people that have studied Austrian economics then the system that we have at the moment is really problematic and we are holding back a huge amount of human potential by engaging in it and that in itself is something that it's very easy to get emotional about but the problem with emotion is that you have to I mean this is kind of a stoic idea really that you have to try and harness it and use it usefully, and it's not productive uh, to get emotional about things in in most situations, um, or at least at least to get um to get angry about things in most situations. Um, often the best way is to think coolly and calmly about the situation and think, okay, what do I need to do to make this better? And uh, I I guess I hold that as an ideal. I don't always uh, live up to it, but. Um, If that's the way I've come across to you in our conversations, Dan, then I'm very pleased.
0: Absolutely. And uh, if Mr. And Mrs. Young ever do listen to this, then, uh, you know, (laughs) I want to say. You've sworn twice.
1: so I can't show it to them now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You've been counting. (laughs) That's uh, yeah. I I hope um, this, this goes a long way to, to helping understand, you know, where, where, all of Peter's time is going at the moment with with regards to the books he's reading and the kind of conversations he's having with with other Bitcoiners and why we think it's such an important important tool for us to change the as you put it the problematic legacy financial system that we've all been kind of born into and brought up with. That, you know it needs changing. If if not, then generations are just going to be excluded and it's already started happening. It's already started happening with, with your generation and the generation following you that um, and this can' this can't go on and, and Bitcoin does fix this pretty much. Uh, the, the, I, and I put out a tweet this morning, you know, what is so um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, did a, little, a little, uh, yeah, what's so speculative about trying to protect your wealth and that is the way I view Bitcoin. It, you know, I'm beyond, I came for number go up. Yes, of course, we all did. We came for, like, your experience was perfect in 2017. I can't imagine how many bottles of champagne you bought, Neil, in uh, in, in the following three months after your first purchases, probably. But, uh, you know, you, you've probably moved beyond that, that number go up. It's nice when it happens. It's brilliant. And we all talk about it, especially on Safe's calls. You know, we, we all have a bit of fun yeah. watching it. But then it's back to business. It's like, okay, well, what does this actually mean? You know, like, where yeah. is this taking society? Where is this taking humanity? You know, that we're we're looking at something we've never had before. You know, a a pure a purely scarce medium of exchange. Wow, with yeah. with the issuance schedule known, yeah. like, what? <laughs> you know, that that gets me every time.
1: Yeah, it's an incredible feat of engineering. And it has incredibly profound implications. And Saifedean made a <laughs> was having a conversation yesterday with Philip Bagus, who's another fellow at the Mises Institute. And uh, one of the things they were talking about was buying Bitcoin. And Philip said that he's more of a precious metal guy because he's more conservative in his approach. And so he's, he's more risk averse. And uh, safe counter to that was, you know, I think it's, I think it's hugely risky not to hold Bitcoin right now, um, because if it does become the basis of a future financial system, then there's a huge opportunity cost associated with knowing about it and not doing anything about it, and, you know, you want to be ahead of the curve and you want to understand things that are going to be important, um, and of course there are potential potential monetary uh, benefits to that as well but um to me it's mainly about the potential this has to kind of bring about a better society and sadly i think we're going in the wrong direction uh, in so many societies around the world we're going in the direction of more uh, interventionism And we're going in the direction of more sympathy towards um, what are effectively rehashed. You know, the old socialist ideas rehashed and uh, called things like uh, modern monetary theory. And Bitcoin does have the potential to kind of impose a bit of order on some of that uh, if it continues to do what it's been doing so far. And so uh, I hope it does. Of course, there are risks associated with it but um it's it's a very hopeful thing and i'm i'm really pleased to uh kind of be on be on the side of of those who support it
0: have you decided on the color of your lambo yet <laughs>
1: you know what like i i really <laughs> as as you, as um you might have seen from my minimalism thread dan i'm not someone who really <laughs> focuses on material things and so I think there are so many things that um, could be done with 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 wealth. That yeah, colours of Lambos just just is a
0: <laughs> say that I don't think I ever come to in my life. <laughs> and what um, probably start wrapping this up very very uh, very very soon. Yeah, we've been going for about an hour and a half. Um, do you do you envisage your your next step? Like. Uh, where, where are you looking into uh living uh, you, you know once this is kind of run its course are you going to be heading back to China uh you know somewhere you spent 10 years or are you going to be looking further afield haven't thought too much about it what's what's going on up in that dome
1: yeah it's a great question um I think that really depends on the nature of the the work so as I've said, I've started doing some, some contracting work, which is done remotely. And so the advantage that that has is that it can be done from any jurisdiction. And one of the things that I wanted, I wanted to do for a long time, um, I'd kind of made up my mind, um, you know, at the back of my mind, I wanted to do this a bit of long, longer term travel, perhaps similar to what, what you've done. Um, but coronavirus sort of stopped that being possible. So one way of me, maybe being able to do that is to find some um, sustainable remote work and then move between a few different jurisdictions and and try them out. Um, so you know, it could be could be South America for a bit. It could be uh, South Africa for a time. It could be uh, some places in in the Middle East. Um, you know, there are lots of options. But I think one of the things that that seems um, like it like it could work. After things ease up a little bit with the international travel, is is maybe flitting around for say a year and uh, getting to see some of the world that that I that I wasn't able to due to the coronavirus uh, immediate response. So that's about as far as my thinking stretches at the moment.
0: Get down to Bitcoin Beach. That's where we want to head to. Right. In, in, uh, <laughs> tell
1: me tell me where the party's happening, and I'll,
0: I'll in, relocate to there in El Salvador. Uh there's um I did an I did an episode with uh, it's called at Bitcoin Beach you can go and listen to Michael oh, t- gosh, talking all yes. about it. Oh gosh. Yes. Yes this, uh, this. El Zonte.
1: And this <laughs> has got some investment from Peter Thiel if I'm thinking of the right
0: one. Is that right? Um I don't it oh, no, this may is... have uh it it was a mysterious backer uh that that has backed this and uh he doesn't know who it is or either does or is very closely guarding it it's, it's a great interview you okay. gotta go and uh, okay. check it out if you if, if you haven't heard it yet it's brilliant uh, but what they're doing is building uh building out a a, a bitcoin standard basically for the local community and it, it just sounds really really awesome and they've got cool co-working spaces so you can go there live remotely uh and and you know be part of a uh a, and watch a community uh, adopt bitcoin which i think would just be pretty pretty special thing to see yeah
1: yeah so i'm really excited about those kinds of projects so i'll uh, factor those into the itinerary if i can
0: yeah absolutely mate this has been awesome uh anything you want to end on uh in particular any other shout outs that you need to give or want to give to anyone
1: oh i just say to people that um if this is one of your earlier podcasts from dan check out all the others, you've done some fantastic work, Dan. You've got some really good people on. Um, one of my um, uh, favourites is the one with Michael Saylor and Jeff Booth that you you did. That was just a really inspiring, very quotable podcast. So I just say thanks to you. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to come on and it's an honour to kind of feature alongside all of these really influential guests that you've had. So uh, I just wanted to end with that.
0: Excellent, mate. Thank you. And make sure you go follow Peter. And you've got some appearances coming up on other podcasts. So we could pre-show those if you want to give those a shout out.
1: Yeah, I'm doing uh, Kevan's uh, Total Bitcoin podcast tomorrow. So that will be coming up. And then I'm doing one with Safer Dean on the 15th of February as well. So stay tuned. I'll be posting awesome, a bit mate. about that on Twitter.
0: Excellent. Well, have a good afternoon, mate. Great to see you and uh, look forward to the next chat. Great. Right. Thank you, Dan. Well, thanks, guys, for listening. And thank you again, Peter, for coming on the show and sharing all of these experiences. And thanks for your work, mate. Honestly, keep it up. It's it's so good. And I urge everybody that's listened to this to go and find his threads at the austrian Three on Twitter. And how could you not after listening to that? And here's a young man that is so far down the rabbit hole but so uh, intellectually um, intrigued and has just this this brilliant passion this burning desire to share everything that he's learned and distill it into such a fashion that any one of us could understand it and uh, and help our own journey down the rabbit hole and ultimately more people to get more people to join us if we can formulate these arguments better and, and get them across in a, in a less sometimes ranty or over passionate way then uh, that's better for all of us as a whole so again huge thanks and if you are of twitter lurker yourself step up look at what can happen this is it this is our time it's brilliant let's go uh, before I sign out, um, I want to say thanks again to Peter for shilling my book. That is Choose Life. You can go and find that on Amazon. Or you can find it on the website once-bitten.com. And before you head off, if you're not stacking sats with either one of these companies, if you live in the UK, coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. If you're in the US, that's swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. I really appreciate everybody that's listening and sharing and liking, and I look forward to the next show. Thanks, guys. Take care.